Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would to find in your copy of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 7. Continuing our study in the book of Hebrews, working our way through this wonderful book, Hebrews chapter 7 represents kind of the heart of the letter that was written to the church here. Uh, is introduced and kind of focused on who Jesus is. And then really he's making a comparison and a contrast there with Jesus being greater and better than the Old Testament patterns and rituals of worship. So 7, 8, 9, and 10 are kind of the heart of the book. And then he gives us kind of how that makes sense with our faith in chapter 11 and applying that for us as Christians in chapters 12 and 13. So we're going to move to kind of the heart of the text here in Hebrews chapter 7. Occasionally in my study, I'll be working through a passage of Scripture and thinking through it and wrestling with it. And uh, I'll come across an insight or something that is tremendously helpful for me. Something that I haven't seen before or noticed before in my own study. And it's, it kind of becomes quite exciting. Sometimes I'll go home and I'll share that with my wife. I'll preach a little bit of my sermon the week before. Occasionally I'll come and talk to our staff about it. Sometimes you on Wednesday nights will get a little bit of that, a hint of that. In my study on Wednesday as I've developed that that, uh, that thought or come across that thought rather in my study. But even then I know that I'm not the first person to have that thought, that, that God gave that to the original writer, and, and many others have come across those insights and understanding in Christian history. Well, we have a little bit of that going on in Hebrews chapter 7. No other place is the connection made between Melchizedek and Jesus than in Hebrews chapter 7. I think this writer, this Bible writer, is making a connection that if it was made by some other writer or thinker or Christian in Christian history, it's not recorded. The only place that these ideas about Melchizedek and Jesus are recorded is in Hebrews chapter 7, or the book of Hebrews, rather. And we're going to try to unpack them. I want to apologize to you, not really apologize, maybe warn you would be a better way to say this. Some of the Hebrews 7, some of this sermon today is a little bit theologically technical. Now, I I can't help that. The writer said that that was the case. He said in chapter 5, some of what I've got to tell you is hard for us to understand. And we're just walking our way through the text, so it's just the way it is, okay? If you do check out, though, at a certain part of the sermon, check back in later Uh, When we get to verses 18 and 19, it it makes a lot more sense, a little more clear and practical, and also tremendously encouraging for us as Christ followers. Uh, I'll do my best to preach not so fast that you you lose track, but fast enough that we won't be here till 1 or 2 o'clock. Okay? Fair enough. We got a meal waiting for those of us that signed up for the Valentine's lunch at 12.15, so I'll do my best to, to get us out at that time. Read with me, if you will, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. 
See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Uh, this passage of Scripture has received much kind of discussion and debate because of those lines about uh, Melchizedek being someone without genealogy, without father, father or mother. Some scholars through the years have taken that to mean that the author is trying to let us know that Melchizedek is some supernatural figure, kind of like an archangel or Michael or maybe a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's the case that the, the author is making. The author is presenting to us an argument that Jesus is better than the Old Testament, better than the Old Testament priesthood, better than the Old Testament practices and rituals. In the Old Testament, the priesthood derived from genealogy. In other words, to be a priest, you had to come from the line of Aaron, who came from the line of Levi. If you weren't a part of Levi's tribe, you couldn't be a priest. If you weren't a part of Aaron's line, you couldn't be a priest. And, and very simply, I think what the author is saying about Melchizedek here is that he does not have genealogy that affirms him as a priest in the way that the Jewish people would have understood there to be a priest. In, in reality, what the author is doing is he's giving us three arguments why Jesus is better and should be our focus. Argument number one is this, Jesus has a better type. A type being Melchizedek. What is a type? Well, the Old Testament is full of types. They foreshadow the archetype or the primary emphasis. Let me give you an example. The law, for example, tells us that God expects holiness. It is, a, it is God's expectation, but it foreshadows something better than itself. The law can't save us. The priesthood of the Old Testament is a type. And in reality, Jesus is the archetype for the priests of the Old Testament. But the priests of the Old Testament are not sufficient in themselves to bring about salvation. Jesus is better than the priesthood. Jesus is better than all of the Old Testament. We're going to unpack that through the next several chapters as we continue our way through the book of Hebrews. 
But Jesus as a type has a better, or Jesus as the archetype, has a better type than the Levitical priesthood. That's exactly the point that the writer is making. He's saying Melchizedek is a better type of Jesus than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And he's going to explain why he thinks that. Now, this is an interesting connection, tremendous connection, actually. Uh, Some 2,000 years before Christ came, in the time of Abraham, the only other reference, or there are three references to Melchizedek in the Bible, the first one comes about 3,000 years ago. It comes when Abraham had defeated an army to, to rescue his nephew Lot. At the end of that rescue attempt, or at the end of that successful rescue attempt, they gathered the spoils and had a celebration, and that's when, in Genesis 14, Abraham met Melchizedek. So when the events that are described here in Hebrews 7 took place, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, and a blessing ceremony took place in that event. That's some 2,000 years before Christ. Moses wrote about those events 1,500 years before Christ when he penned the words of Genesis. No other time in the Old Testament until you get to Psalm 110 is Melchizedek even referenced. Psalm 110 has been quoted on several occasions already by the writer of Hebrews, uh, and he quotes it again in this section of Scripture. David wrote about Melchizedek in Psalm 110. So you got a thousand years before when Melchizedek met Abraham, then a thousand years later David references Melchizedek. No other place in the entirety of the Older New Testament is this figure, Melchizedek, mentioned anywhere until you get to the book of Hebrews. And primarily he's focused on here in Hebrews chapter 7. So a thousand years separates every biblical communication about Melchizedek. Abraham, then David, and then finally the writer of Hebrews draws these connections. He draws some connections that help us grasp how Melchizedek is a better type of Jesus. John MacArthur puts it in a way better than I can put it, and he describes Melchizedek being a type of Jesus and why he is a better type using this language. He says the Melchizedekian priesthood was universal, not national. It was royal, righteous, and peaceful. It was personal, not hereditary. It was eternal, not temporary. Let me unpack what what he means by that and what the text shows us about that. Notice verse 1. Melchizedek, king of Salem, is priest of the Most High God. The people of Israel worshipped Yahweh. The priests worshipped Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name for God, a name by which we know God individually and relationally. The priests were priests of Yahweh. But part of what that did in their mindset is it kind of made them very insular. The the people of Israel in the Old Testament worshipped their God. And the several times, or the occasional times, when God said to the people of Israel, take me outside of our national location, take me to others, the people of Israel didn't like that. Jonah, for example, did not want to go to Nineveh and tell the Ninevites about the God who is. Okay? So there was kind of a national focus, a national connection to God. And in the priesthood of Melchizedek, you have something deeper than that. Notice the way he's described. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. That is a universal statement about God. He is God above all. He is not just the God of a people. He's not just the God of a nation. He is the God of nations. He is the ruler over all. He is God universal. There's no group of people that's outside his rule and his reign. And, and the writer here draws attention to that. Jesus is like Melchizedek in that he is not just a priest for a nation. He's not just a priest for a group of people. He's a priest for all peoples who would come to God by way of Jesus Christ. That should encourage us greatly. 
because we're not a people, we're not the tribe of Israel. We don't trace our lineage back to Jewish origins. God saves lowly people in Wilkes County, North Carolina, just like he wants to save people all over the world. Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, a better type, because he is, his priesthood is universal. His priesthood is also royal. He's described as a king. Uh, verse 2, he is first by translation of the name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem. Uh, Melchizedek is a king. He was king and a priest. We talked about that a few weeks ago. King of Jerusalem, also a priest. Jesus' priesthood is both kingly and a priest. He, he serves in both the capacity of representing us to God, but he is also able to represent any of our situations to God and able to deal with our situations. He's sovereign. He's in control. He rules. Folks, that should be tremendously encouraging. The world may look like it's in chaos, but we have a God who reigns still through Jesus Christ. Melchizedek's priesthood was royal. It was also righteous and peaceful. His name, Melchizedek, means righteousness. His name as a king, king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, means king of peace. And so Melchizedek's uh, priesthood is both righteous and peaceful. That, that, that's what we need. We need a priest who is both righteous and able to bring about peace. Do you know what the problem with our world is? You know what your problem is and my problem is? Our problem is that when we sin, we are at enmity with God. We're at war with God. Our problem is not primarily political. Our problems in the world are not primarily geopolitical. They're not even primarily catastrophic with relation to, the, to the, all the broken things that happen in our world. The primary problem with our world is that we are at war with God. Your neighbors who don't know Jesus are at, are at enmity with God, the Bible describes. There, there's a break with God. Why is there a break with God? Why is there a world that is at war with God? It is because we lack righteousness. God's expectations, we sang about it. He is holy, holy, holy. God's expectations are absolute righteousness, absolute holiness. He demands that of us. And the reason our world is fighting and flailing and living in frustration is because our world is at enmity with God. Our world is at war with God because our world is not full of righteousness People around us are full of sinfulness and depravity and wickedness. And folks, we need someone who will bring reconciliation between us and God. We need our, free, our, our unrighteousness wiped away and be made righteous so that we can be at peace with God. Melchizedek's very name, righteousness, and his, his title as king of Jerusalem full of peace, is a representation, it's a type, foreshadowing of Jesus. For Jesus brings righteousness. Jesus is the very fulfillment of the righteous expectations of God. He obeyed the law with absolute perfection and glory and perfection and holiness. And because he did, he represents, he was able to represent sinful people on the cross by taking upon himself the unrighteousness of the world. And by taking upon himself the unrighteousness of the world and offering us forgiveness through his death on the cross, he is able to make us at peace with God. Melchizedek, as a type, points forward to the righteousness of Christ and points forward to the reality that Jesus is going to bring us peace. Uh, next, uh, Jesus, or Melchizedek's priesthood was personal, not hereditary. 
That's where we get those phrases about his genealogy, having neither mother or nor, nor father, not representing some kind of supernatural requirement for Melchizedek, simply making the connection Melchizedek was a priest based on who he was. He was in a right relationship with God. God selected him to be king of Jerusalem and a particular priest. His priesthood did not derive from who his parents were or who he came from. Well, that's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus does not get his right to be priest because his human lineage came from the tribe of Aaron or the tribe of Levi. That's not the way it worked. Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. The writer goes on to tell us, and we know this from other places in Scripture, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus' priesthood doesn't derive from his human lineage. Jesus' priesthood derives from himself. He is... God incarnate, God in human flesh. He is right and righteous in and of himself. He doesn't need a lineage to be a priest. He is priest by reference of who he is as Jesus, God incarnate. It's not hereditary. It doesn't connect to people. It also means that it, it's, his priesthood is eternal, not temporary. The last Priest forever is the way the description says in verse 3. Uh, Melchizedek continues as a priest forever, as the priesthood of Jesus continues forever. The priesthood of the Old Testament was always meant to be temporary. In fact, the priests were temporary. They started their priestly service at 25 and ended at 50. Could no longer serve in their priestly function at 50 years old. That was the way it worked. It was intended to be temporary. The, the structures of the Old Testament were always intended to be temporary. They're not intended to be permanent. Uh, but Jesus' priesthood is not temporary. It's not like he came once and then he has to come again and then he has to be a priest again. He came once to be priest, once for all to be priest. His priesthood is eternal. Meaning that his death that he died on the cross some 2,000 years ago is sufficient to bring about our salvation today, but it's sufficient to last forever and forever and forever. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. So Melchizedek is a foreshadowing, is a type of all of the things that Jesus' priesthood that make him better and make Melchizedek a better type and make Jesus a better priest. He gives some other reasons why we know Jesus is greater as a result of following this priesthood of Melchizedek. In the next paragraph, he says that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Tithes in the Old Testament were expected of the people of God. The Levites, the Levites and the priests did not have allotments of land. Their, their sustenance for living came through the people of God tithing to the Levites who would then tithe to the priests. That's the way God structured the priests and the Levites to be provided for. Okay? Uh, and I think that this text and other places indicate that tithing is something we ought to do as followers of God. We ought to give probably more than a tithe, but there's an expectation there. But if you go all the way back to Genesis 14, when Abraham tithed, he wasn't tithing based on the law. He wasn't tithing because there was some kind of grand expectation of God for him to tithe. The reason he tithed is because prior to the law being written about tithing, it was natural for someone who experienced some financial blessings, spoils of war in the case of Abraham, to bless someone or to give to someone who was greater than him a tithe. It's like a representation of who is greater. It, and he was giving it to God by giving it to Melchizedek. That's the picture there. And the argument that the author of Hebrews uses is he says, if the people of God tithe to the Levites who tithe to the priests, and that's according to the law, but Abraham 
who is the forefather of all the tithes of the Old Testament, if Abraham tithed to someone who was outside of the genealogy and the lineage of Abraham's line, if he tithed to someone else, then Abraham by extension and the people of God by extension are actually tithing to Abraham who is a, or tithing to Melchizedek who is a better priest, a better type of priest for Jesus. It's a glorious picture of acknowledging who is greater. He goes on to say that the greater always blesses the lesser. Now, lesser people don't bless greater people. That's not the way it works. Uh, in, in picture, what happened was Abraham, this model of faith that we're going to continue to read about and look at in the book of Hebrews, this man who we would emulate for his trusting of God, this man who pictured saving faith, this man who was faithful to God, not perfectly, but certainly savingly in a way that we ought to model after this forefather of the Hebrew religious system, this forefather of Christianity, Abraham, this one we're to emulate, bowed on his knees after winning that victory to in front of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blessed him. Melchizedek blessed, Melchizedek the greater, blessed Abraham the lesser. Abraham, whom earlier in Genesis 12, God had said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, Melchizedek blessed this great figure of Jewish religious history. And the argument that the author's making is, if this is what took place with Abraham and Melchizedek, then Melchizedek serves as a better type for Jesus, and he's essentially saying to his, his readers, why would you go back to some lesser way of, of being able to interact and relate to God. Why would you go back to something that's less important? Why would you go back to something that's not as great as this foreshadowed Jesus who is way better than the priesthood of the Old Testament? Jesus has a better type. A second argument that the author makes is Jesus is a better priest than the Levitical priesthood. He makes that case in verses 11 through 19. He makes that case because the priesthood of Aaron and Levi was not sufficient to do what people needed to have happen. Notice the word used, verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Perfection. There are several ways the word perfect is translated in English. It's translated perfect in several places in the, in the New and Old Testament. But there are several words behind that translation uh, that... that, that could be translated perfect. One of those words would be the idea of sinless perfection. That's not included in the text. Another way that perfect has been, uh, there's a word for perf that's translated perfect in our English language is a word that means complete. You find that word in Matthew 5.48 when Jesus says, Be ye therefore perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. He's talking in that context about being complete, being right in your motivations as well as right in your actions. That's not the word used here. The word for perfect used here is the word that carries with it the idea the only way you're able to access God or to be in relationship with God or be near God is to be perfect. That's the word he's using here. So what the writer is telling us by way of argument is he's saying if the Old Testament patterns, laws, religious system, priesthood we're able to make us so that we could access God, so that we could be in relationship with God, there wouldn't have been a need for anything else. But the Old Testament system is, was not enough. It was not sufficient to allow us to have access in relationship with God. So something better had to come along. That something better is someone better. It's Jesus 
himself. And there are two words in, the te- in these paragraphs that indicate the difference of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus, that show that he's better than the priesthood of Aaron. The first word is the word you're going to find in two places, the word arise. Verse 11 and verse 15. Arises. Jesus arose. He, he came about. He came into being. In some places, that word could simply mean he, he showed up. He, he rose up. But there are, there's at least one implied meaning and one explicit meaning that show Jesus to be different in the text. The implied meaning is this. The word, the word carries with it the idea of coming alive, implying incarnation. So in verse 11, notice what it says. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? And then verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So the, the, the implication is that someone came alive in the very order of Melchizedek, came alive, being made alive. In other words, someone very different came alive to come in the order of Melchizedek, implying the incarnation. Jesus is not like these others. He's different. We'll come back to that in a moment. A second, more explicit characteristic of the word arise is coming alive again. Carries with it the idea of resurrection. Jesus is not like the other priests because he's not a priest who came and he lived and he died and he's done. He came and he lived and he died and he rose again. His priesthood continues forever. That's where you get verse 17. But by the power of an indestructible life, it doesn't mean that Jesus was never dead. He did die. He, it doesn't, indestructible doesn't mean can't be dead. It just means can't be destroyed can be permanently dead. And we know Jesus was never permanently dead. He had an indestructible life. Yes, he died. He died so that our sins could be paid for, so that death would deal with our unrighteousness. But he didn't stay there. He rose again. And the word arise in these contexts carries with it the explicit reference to Jesus' resurrection. We know he's different. And another word, the word another, in verse 11, verse 13, and verse 15, carries with it that same idea that Jesus is not like these others. He's something more and better. We use another in all sort of contexts in English language. If I finish my water this morning, I'll get another water. Another of the same kind, water. But the Greek word used for another here is the word heteros. It means another of a different kind altogether. Someone different, something different, completely different. Jesus is not like these. He is another of a different kind. How is he another of a different kind? Well, he's another priest, yes, but he's a different kind of priest. He's not a priest after the order of Melchizedek, or excuse me, after a priest after the order of the Levitical line. He didn't get there by genealogy. He didn't get there by lineage, which is why the author goes on to say he came from the tribe of Judah. He's not like these other priests. He's like Melchizedek in that his priesthood is more significant. He's not like the Levitical priesthood in that his priesthood is not temporary. He didn't live and die and his priesthood done. He lived and he died and he rose again and his priesthood lasts forever. That's why we can say, Hebrews 7.25, the kind of linchpin of the argument, which we won't get to today, is he always lives to make intercession. Our priest is not dead. Our priest did not live a life and die and go away. Our priest is alive and alive forever and forever and forevermore. He is another of a different kind. He he is better. He is a better priest than the Old Testament priesthood. 
So Jesus has a better, uh, he has a better type, Melchizedek. He's better than the Old Testament priesthood. And he is a better hope than the Old Testament system. So if you checked out at any point in that argument, check back in right now. Give you a pulse. Tell you again, check back in. And give you something that will be tremendously encouraging and why the whole point of the argument moves to verses 18 and 19. Notice what he goes on to say. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Meaning the Old Testament, the commands, the priesthood, all of that was good for what it was, but it is not useful for the ultimate purpose for which God sent Jesus. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. Remember, perfect is having been made so that we can be in God's presence. Verse 11, he said that. The law couldn't make you perfect. He repeats that here in verse 19. The law can't make you perfect. You can't be in God's presence through the system of the Old Testament. The Levitical priesthood, good for what it was, wasn't enough, can't make you holy enough, righteous enough, perfect enough to be in God's presence. Notice what he continues. But on the other hand, because there's a one better, because there's one who comes after a different type, because there's one who's different, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus is a better hope than the Old Testament system. Let me give you three specific applications from that that should encourage us as readers and hearers today. The first is this. We can be certain, so we need to trust Christ. Jesus provides a better hope. A lot of times we use hope today in terms of wishful thinking. I hope I'll feel better tomorrow. I didn't feel so good today. I hope my pains in the next week go away and and, and they kind of get better. I hope my team will win. I kind of hoped that for the Tar Heels yesterday. But it was wishful thinking. And what I mean by that is they haven't played very well lately, so it's kind of wishful thinking. But they won. It was great. Hallelujah. Amen. If you're a Clemson fan, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it, it's just the way it happens. Uh, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of confidence they're going to win a game next, time, next week. I just, you know, it's wishful thinking, hopeful. Think that, think that it should be that way. That's not the way hope is defined biblically. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. The word for hope here is used as something that's absolutely certain that we merely have to wait for. So when the Bible says Jesus is a better hope, he doesn't want us to kind of have this wishful thinking mindset. Oh, I just just hope maybe Jesus will make things better, this wishful thought, maybe it'll be better next week. No, it's an absolute certainty. It's, It's a total guarantee that what God has promised is going to take place. We just merely have to wait until it does take place so we can trust Christ. Folks, that is tremendously encouraging. God has made it possible that you and I can have absolute certainty that things are going to be better in the future. Maybe not in the way we'd like them to be, but in the way that really matters, they're going to be better because Jesus provides that as an absolute certainty. Folks, that's why we ought not to waffle and waver as Christians. That's why we ought to have peace. Yeah, I'm concerned about what's going on in the world. You should be too. It troubles me. It breaks my heart. It's disconcerting. It's difficult. It's worrisome. It's fretful. But we have a God who has said, this is going to take place. And He is in control and He rules and He reigns. Uh, Let me just 
give you a little bit of encouragement. That I, I didn't know this until yesterday. I was talking with one of our church members. It is devastating what took place in Turkey. The, the, the earthquake, the thousands and thousands that are dead, devastating. Uh, and, and I knew Turkey was a part of Asia Minor. Many of the places where Paul visited and preached and taught are in that region of the world. Modern-day Turkey is where the early church spread. Many of the churches you'd read about in, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, come from there. Did you realize, I didn't know this till yesterday, that one of, near the epicenter of where the earthquake took place is where the church was first called the church at Antioch. Of course, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, is nothing like it was 2,000 years ago when the gospel was spreading. Modern-day Turkey has been overrun by Islam, and it's predominantly Muslim. And as devastating as an earthquake is, as tragic as it is for loss of life, you wonder if God may not have a plan and purpose to send his people back to that region that he sent Paul and Silas to so many years ago. And you know what they're going to do? And I know people right now are on the field. They're showing the love of Christ and they will share the gospel of Christ in the midst of devastation and tragedy and circumstance. You know what I think God is probably going to do through missionaries and witnesses who are just there to show love to people? Spread the gospel. Folks, we can be certain. So we need to trust Christ. Whatever your burden, whatever your situation, whatever you're going through, we can trust Christ because He is a better hope. Let me give you a second application. We can be forgiven. So ask God to forgive and cleanse. Where do I get that from? Well, He says, through which we draw near to God. The only way to have access to God was to have your sins forgiven. That's why Jesus is a better, has a better type in Melchizedek. He provides righteousness and reconciliation. The whole mechanism of the Old Testament system was so that people could ask for forgiveness for their sins. It's the whole reason for the priesthood. And in hopes that maybe one might be able to get a little closer to God. But if you read through the Old Testament, read through the systems of the Old Testament... All of those places were basically limit, limitations on getting near to God. Right? And, and the reason for that was because sinfulness is what kept us away from God. The, the Old Testament system was the best of the systems that's ever been invented. I mean, think about this. There are thousands of other religious systems in the world. Hundreds of other Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and all those other things. Uh, and And... All of those systems are means by which we can try to receive forgiveness for our sins. That's why those religious systems were put into place. But I want you to watch this for a second. If the greatest religious system that has ever been thought up is the Old Testament religious system, and God thought it up. I mean, the ideas of the Old Testament aren't, didn't come from Moses or, or from Abraham or from Levi or Aaron or any of those. It came from God himself. He wrote them down through them. And yet those systems don't get us into relationship with God and get us forgiveness. Jesus does. And here's what, what this affirmation tells us. That Jesus is better than any other way that we're trying to find forgiveness and cleansing from our sins. There's no other way for forgiveness to take place other than through Jesus Christ. We can be forgiven. If you're here today and you do not yet have a relationship with Christ... If you're here today and you know you're holding on to some sinful behavior, folks, the only thing you can do is go to God through Jesus and he will forgive and cleanse. 
So Christian, if you're here, you're holding on to some kind of sinful behavior or sinful pattern, then, then let go of it. Trust Jesus. Ask Him to forgive you and He'll cleanse you. 1 John 1 says He'll forgive us of our sins if we'll confess our sins. Now, unbelievers, if you're here today and you don't yet have a relationship with God, you don't have forgiveness of your sins, Jesus came so that you can be cleansed and washed. Come to Him and trust Christ. I'll give you a third application. We can be near God. So come to God through Jesus today. We can be near God. The whole Old Testament is a story about not being able to approach God. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They walked with God in the garden. What stopped when they sinned? Walking with God in the garden. And occasionally in the Old Testament, God came down and he spoke to a prophet or he spoke to a king or he intervened in his situation in the Old Testament. Why? So that he would move forward his plan of redemption. God absolutely did that in the Old Testament. But the people in the Old Testament could not approach God. In fact, if you came with an offering on a Day of Atonement Day, you couldn't go to the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice and come into God's presence. Only the priest could go in there. And so there was a representation taking place. Only certain people, a certain person, could even come close to approaching the place where God said his presence would be. But that's not the way it is today. You can approach God today through Jesus. You don't need a priest, you don't need a preacher. You don't need a church. You need to be at church. I mean, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we need the church, we need the people of God. But why? Not to get to God. Do you hear me? We get to God through Jesus. The church, the preachers, the priests, our job is to tell you what the Bible says so that we can get to God through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Christian, if you've got something on your heart and your, your mind, something you're struggling with, go to God through Jesus. Now, you can come tell me about it. I'll pray with you about it. I'll pray for you. We'll try to bear one another's burdens as we do as the body of Christ. We absolutely will do that. But the same Jesus I'm going to take your burden to is the same Jesus you can go to today. And Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, gives you access to God. You can be near God today. Sometimes we think, man, I, I can't be near God because I got this in my life, I got that in my life, or I'm trying to make this happen right, or I, I'm, I'm kind of torn up in legalistic patterns of behavior of my past. And that was the religious people that, 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 that the writer of Hebrews was preaching to. He was saying, no, you don't have to go this way to get to God. You don't have to go through the priesthood or the sacrificial system. You just go to God through Jesus. It means at least two things for those of us that are hearers today. If you're here in the room and you do not yet know God through Christ, God does know you by name. We sang that and testified to that earlier. He knows everything going on in your life. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows all of it. And Jesus is better than every bit of it. He's greater than every bit of it. If you're here and you do not have a relationship with God... Jesus died on the cross so that you could be forgiven for your sins. Jesus died on the cross so that you could enter into a relationship with God. Know God personally, and God know you, and you sense that presence. That is a glorious privilege. God can make you right with himself. If you're lost, today's the day for you to trust Jesus to be your Savior. Christian, here's how that encourages us. 
I know some of you have some stuff that you're carrying, some burdens that you're holding on to, some situations that are in front of you, some uncertainties, some worries, some fears. You can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. And at this invitation in a moment, maybe you need to come to the altar. Some came to the altar at the end of our other worship service. May come to this altar. May bring it to the altar and, and, and leave it with God. Or try to leave it with God. Maybe you've come to God with that a hundred times or a thousand times. Or more than that, guess what? God's going to be waiting on you through Jesus to come to him a thousand more. Bring it to him. Leave it with him. Trust him with it. Maybe you just want to do that where you're seated or where you're standing through our invitation to him. Just bringing those things to the Lord and trusting him with them. But you can go to God through Jesus Christ. That's an encouraging thought. Stand with me if you will. Father, how often do we put things in the way of you? So easy for us to do. Maybe it's our own sinfulness. Sometimes it's sin of omission or commission. Sometimes it's not trusting you. Sometimes, Lord, we're like the readers here in the book of Hebrews. We want to go back to past patterns of behavior and try to make sense of faith based on what we've done or what we've heard told rather than come to God through Christ. Forgive us for that. Lord, as I look out across our room, I know there are some folks that are weighed down with some burdens and some circumstances in life. Help them, Lord God, to come to you through Christ. Help them to sense a right relationship and a right access to you through Jesus. Give them the hope that they need. Father, I know there are probably some in the room that don't yet know Christ as Savior and Lord. Pray that you convict them of their sin. Show them their need for forgiveness that only Christ can bring. Show them that laws and rituals and rites, while they point to Christ, they can't save. Only Christ can save. Bring them to faith. Change their hearts and draw them to you. Lord, may we all know the glorious privilege of being able to draw near to a holy and a righteous God through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.